So, in the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, the magazine of the Naval Institute, get, have fun with that, Frank Koch illustrated the importance of obeying the laws of the lighthouse. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvering in heavy weather for several days. It was serving on, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called aloud. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalmen, signal the ship, we are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back in the day, they'd use a light and heavy fog to send a message. Back came the signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send, I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman of second class, came the reply. You had better change your course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, Send, I am a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. We try to grab authority all the time. We try to grab control. I see it at the children in the playground. Even as a child goes up to another child, he suggests a game that they should play together. He doesn't ask what game would you would like to play. They say, will you play this with me? Why? Because they seek to be in charge of said game. They seek authority. And the fact is, we like being in charge. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to seek to be in charge. God grants us authority over the creatures of the land and the air, creatures in Genesis. And he says in 1 Timothy 3 that anyone who aspires to leadership aspires to a good thing. But without the lighthouse... Without the leader grounded on the rock, we can surely perish. Today's lesson, we're going to see just how in control, how much authority Christ has in this world. And we see how we should respond to such authority. Okay? How giving up authority grants us authority. I want you to catch that. How giving up authority grants us authority. Turn with me to Luke 4, 31 through 44. Turn with me to Luke 4, 31 through 44. Bring in the book of Luke for like the next year. So bring your Bibles. We'll be there. Luke 4, 31 through 44. Luke is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Juan. One one. My name is Juan. Okay, Luke four, thirty one through forty four. Let me let me start the story. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Simon Peter, fisherman. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Let me pray. Lord, there's a lot happening in this passage. There's been a lot happening in the passages that we've covered previously in the last couple weeks. And as we kind of dig into the middle of this miracle, in between the bookends that we've uh, studied the last two weeks, I pray that you give us insight and wisdom. And Lord, I also pray that you give us a sense of submission. Uh, Lord, that you are the main authority over the um, spirits of the world, over diseases, over the creatures, and over us. And Lord, that we would willingly, hopefully, and urgently submit to the King. In your son's name, amen. In the be- if the beginning of this passage sounds familiar, it's because it's supposed to. Remember when Jesus was in his hometown synagogue several weeks ago? Remember that talk? He was in Nazareth. Reading the scroll of Isaiah, it is literally the section before this section. It's literally the section right before this section. The main difference is that his hometown marveled at his words coming from his mouth. The people of Capernaum were astonished at his words, yes, his teaching, but that his word possessed authority. That's what they were astonished at. Jesus had authority. His words carried it. The spirit was upon him. We know this from the few texts prior, especially the temptation of Jesus in the desert, which happens in the same chapter of Luke. Jesus is offered authority by Satan. It's one of the many things Satan offers him. Luke 4, 5, and 6, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. What is ironic is this, and this is your first fill in the blank, that you have to fill in all the blank of. What is ironic is this. By refusing the authority of Satan, Jesus commands the demons. By refusing the authority of Satan, Jesus commands the demons. Now, that isn't the reason he commands the demons, but just think about it. He's not commanding demons, and he was the one that told Satan to essentially back off. Who are you? Jesus knew who was authority. Again, by refusing the authority of Satan, Jesus commands the demons. Now, we are going to meet demons throughout the gospel. We meet Satan, the prince of this world, early in the chapter. And here in this passage, we meet one of Satan's workers. Now, those of you who have been with me for a while know that I hate talking about demonology and angelology. You know I hate that. But... With the spirit world being so prevalent in this gospel, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't deal with this head on here. So we can deal with it and have to talk about it for the remainder. 
So the first question I'm going to give is, what is the Reformed's position on demons or spirits, as they were referred to in this passage? So if you want to know the next section heading, it is, what is our position on demons and spirits? What is our position on demons and spirits? Because let's be real, okay? We have a Reformed position. There are denominations out there that this is all they talk about, okay? There's a, the, there's a, the demon is the broken chair, and the demon is the broken vacuum. There is a demon in that copier in the other room, but that's another story. Man. All right? So what is our position on them? And I'm going to answer three questions, okay? I'm going to answer who is Satan? Who are demons? Are they like a band? And what do they do? Who is Satan? Who are demons? And what do they do? Those are three positions I'm going to give you. To start, who is Satan? It's kind of a big deal. Satan is mentioned 29 times in the Gospels. John Blanker describes uh, this as such. The Bible refers to him 52 times as Satan, adversary or opposer, and 35 times as the devil, accuser or slanderer. While other titles include the evil one, John 17, a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, Abaddon, destroyer, Revelation 9-11, a great red dragon, Revelation 12, and the ancient serpent, Revelation 12. Pulling all these together, we have a truly terrifying picture, not merely of some kind of vague influence, but of an immensely powerful enemy. Amazingly clever, intrinsically evil, and a destructive person. The ruler and leader of hosts of lesser spirits, utterly under his control. We know he's a fallen angel, and that he opposes God even trying to bring Jesus to worship him in the early part of Luke 4. So we know about Satan. So who are demons? John Calvin writes in the Institutes concerning demons. So I'm quoting from Calvin here. The angelic host help in God's plan. So demons are in opposition to his work, though under his control. Scripture warns us against the adversary and equips us for combat against the adversary. Scriptural references to devils in the plural remind us of the vast host of enemies against us, that we may not slacken our efforts and the reference to Satan in the singular. Set the kingdom of wickedness over against the kingdom of righteousness, the church of the saints over against the faction of the impious. Yet the devil stands under God's power, and Satan can only act with God's permission. Okay? So if there was a lot of, like, big words there, understand this. God is in control of Satan and his demons. This is not like a chess game. Checkmate is already put on the board. This is not yin and yang. It seems like Calvin's high view of the sovereignty of God render the need to battle demons superfluous. God governs all creatures to include the devil himself. All things. So what do they do? What do they do? John Blackard continues. Simply put, demons are involved in every part of Satan's program. Opposing God, preventing people understanding the gospel, opposing God's people, attacking the church, tempting people to sin, thwarting the spread of the gospel. Much is made of their part in causing sickness. But although there is an example in the Bible of a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, Jesus describes her as someone Satan bound for 18 years, Luke 13. We have no warrant for directly attributing all physical illnesses to satanic or demonic activity. Let me say that again. There are people that say, well, you see here in Luke, 
13, there was a woman who Satan hit with an illness. That means all illnesses are the work of the devil. That is logically does not follow. That does not jump in. The, that's jumping the ship. Right? We have no warrant for directly attributing all physical illness to satanic or demonic activity. There are those who have claimed that demons are responsible for every affliction, affliction, disease, or aberration. But the American theologian Augustus Strong was on safer ground when he wrote, We are to attribute disease and natural calamity to the, age, to the demonic agency only when it is a matter of special revelation. Only when it is a matter of special revelation. Okay, does that make sense? So let me, let me give you a warning. I always give people a warning. Because I don't care who I am, if, especially if I'm around new students, this always comes out. What do you think about angels and demons and stuff like this? Right? People are obsessed with this stuff. There are plenty of movies, books that try to dive deeper into this, many of which can be found at our local Christian bookstore even. But for the most part, I think they're dangerous. And Calvin warns us again in the Institutes. In obscure matters, let's take demonology and angelology. In obscure matters... Not to speak or think or even long to know more than the word of God has delivered. A second rule is that in reading scripture, we should constantly direct our inquiries and meditation to those things which tend to, ed- tend to edification. Not indulge in curiosity or in studying things of no use. This is a huge rabbit trail that people will literally spend their lives going down that I don't want you to. Don't obsess over it. It's not going to change anything. We cannot know the number of angels on the pen, like the head of a pen. We just can't. Okay? The people have spilled tons of ink trying to divulge that. And unless special revelation is revealed from God on it, it's stupid to ask the question. Because where does it lead? You're not going to know the side of heaven. When you get to the other side of heaven, ask those questions away. But we are not going to be given special revelation on this. Okay? So, and I tend to agree with Calvin. Demons exist, they oppose the church, but Christ has control over them. So do not fear, and do not speculate about them. Just take what is given in Scripture, and move on to things that are more edifying, things that matter to your daily life. And namely this, this is your next full fill in the blank, namely this, Christ is sovereign, even over the bad guys. Christ is sovereign. Even over the bad guys. S O V E R E I G N. Christ is sovereign, even over the bad guys. He has authority, both in his words and in his actions, and that should bring you great comfort. The second thing that is interesting to note in this section of Scripture is the way the demon possessed man responds. While our ESV and other texts that are like the ESV use the word ha, that word ha is an exclamation in the Greek text. Think of it as a grunt, an utterance out of your being in which no words can grasp what you want. The demon is not happy to see Jesus. The KJV and other translations uh, put it as let us alone or leave us alone. They are not happy to see him. Think of the person who is just like, man, you're such a pain. You're selfish. Um, there, there are no one in your circle of friends that enjoys them. And they show up at your party. 
it's that, ugh, not them. Like you don't got words for it, you're just like, oh, that's that, ha, ugh. Let us alone. Go away. I don't want to deal with you. That's what the demon is saying there. Go away. The demon knows Jesus is on the other team. And Jesus knows the demon's on the other team too. But listen to how the demon responds. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is one of the big fill in the blanks I want you to get tonight. There is a difference between knowing and following. There's a difference between knowing and following. The demon knows who Jesus is. They probably know him, demons, better than most of the people do in this very room. But they don't follow him. Do you know him? Or do you follow him? Write that question down. Do you know him? Or do you follow him? We should approach that question with a lot of fear. Do we know Jesus? Or do we follow Jesus? The demons know Jesus. They do not follow Jesus. We know from Scripture that there were disciples who walked away with walked who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who saw him do miracles, but eventually turned their back on him. John six six six. Yes, that number's there. It has nothing to do with. Yeah. After tells us after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If you are around the church long enough, you will meet plenty of people who will convince you they are Christians. But when push comes to shove, it costs them too much of their own lives to be in control. They call to carry the cross and follow Jesus is just too much. So after a semester in college, a broken relationship with a significant other, a job they really want, the RSV to a party invitation, they drop the cross they carry only to realize that it was made of glass as it shatters on the floor. It was not built strong. Luke 14, 26 through 27 says this, If anyone comes to me and does not take and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you know the context, it's about being willing to give up everything to follow Christ. Does not matter. Of, it's not a matter of just knowing him. It's a matter of following him. The fact is, at the end of the day, whether you choose to follow him or not, you will still be controlled by him. Philippians 2, 9 and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even the demons who literally just did that in this passage, to the glory of their Father in heaven. Jesus had authority to rebuke the devil. Jesus had the authority to cause people to be in awe of his words. Jesus had the authority to tell the disciples to follow him. Jesus had the authority to tell the fish to jump into the net. Jesus had the authority to cast out the demons. And Jesus had the authority to dispel sickness. Immediately, 
immediately. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed. He didn't hang around. Flee from me. Jesus spoke both in Galilee and Capernaum, and people were in awe. Levi leaves his tax booth immediately. Same with Peter and the sons of thunder. The fish jump into the net immediately. The demon leaves immediately. The sickness of Simon Peter's mother leaves immediately. The author of the world that stretched out his hands over the darkness and spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1 speaks healing and direction into the world in the Gospels and has the authority to do so. There are no excuses. There is not a fight that is put up. There is only action. That is the response to those who follow Christ and even those who don't follow Christ but recognize his authority. My children, when I give them a direction, will regularly try to make an excuse not to follow it. Stephen, it's time for bed. But I'm thirsty. Proceed to give him water. Stephen, it's time for bed. I don't know how to walk up the stairs. (laughs) He fights his father for control, just like we fight our father for control. By granting that God is in control, we will finally feel some control of our life. So how can I apply this to my life today? AJ, how can I today apply this to my life? How can I serve the king? That's the next kind of heading. How do I serve the king here? Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Just think about that. Like, rebuked the fever. Bad fever. Like, out. He called the fever out. This is not something that had, like, a personality. But he is strong enough to tell him to leave. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. When we are in awe of a Savior, when we are in awe of a Savior, granting him authority is easy. And when we realize who he is in authority... We honor the king by serving him. We talk about this regularly. The mission statement of our church is to what? To be? Who said it? Captivated? Transformed? And to gift away the gospel. When we are captivated by the words of Christ, when we are in awe, it causes us to do two things. First, is that it would, that we are transformed by giving up our authority to it. When we're captivated, we're, we're immediately transformed. Lord, I surrender all. It was a wonderful Babylon Bee article, which is that satire piece online. It's a new addition to the hymnal, or correction to the hymnal. I surrender some, not I surrender all. I surrender some. Because it's so easy for us to, Lord, I, I want to surrender that. But if we are captivated by the gospel, we say, take it. Take all of it. We are willing to be sent anywhere, to do hard things, to listen not to our own comfort, but to his counsel. We are transformed by the freedom to try to not juggle the world that we were never meant to. That's the beauty of it. That's the freedom, the liberty that we've talked about before. It is absolving control. Then... Second thing, we invite others. You look at what happens after she's healed. Two things. She serves. She's just gone back. She's just got done with being sick, and now she serves. I don't know about you, but after I get done with the flu, 
I'm like not ready to serve around the house yet. I'm like, I just got done being sick. Can I watch Netflix? Like, Netflix. I just, but she, boom, she wants to serve. There is no task beneath her, just as there is no task beneath our Savior. Two, everyone else goes out and gets the people that need this freedom that Christ offers. That's the two things that happen. Boom, we go. So surrender the king. Surrender to the king. Serve the king. And broaden the borders of his kingdom. We will talk about that more today in transformation groups. What does that authority look like? What does giving up that control look like in our daily lives? So we're going to cover.